So, um, Sally was talking about mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, the other night, and then last night James speaking about how the just the steadiness of awareness that's imbued with relax. See if I can remember relaxation. Interest. Interest. <laughs> it's a test. What's the third one? What's the third one? Very good. <laughs> See, I have it written down. I could have looked. That awareness imbued with those three things. I think he said something like right at the end of his talk, something about just with the steadiness of that, there's nothing else you have to do. Everything happens by itself. So I just wanted to pick up from that. And um, coming out of something, uh, Utejaniya, which a few people have mentioned, being one of my teachers recently, he talks a lot about um, reminding us that the beginning, as well as the ending of the whole circle of the path, the beginning is right view, right understanding. And when we understand correctly, that leads to how we think, our intentions, our attitude of mind. Those are the first and second steps of the Eightfold Path. And so the way he talks about beginning our practice with right intention is basically giving some information about why we're doing what we're doing, or the way I say it, how it works. So what I, in a simple way, and certainly not all-encompassing, hope to do now is just talk a little bit about why the steadiness of uh, awareness that's not colored by uh, confusion, by distortions, why that is the key to everything happening by itself, and what do we mean by everything happening by itself? Anyway, in other words, some background on why we're doing what we're doing, what the point is. And then, when we understand a little bit, whatever technique we're doing, we can meet it with right attitude, with appropriate attitude. Our tendency can be to focus on, well, I'm doing this technique, I'm doing that technique, I'm looking for this experience, I'm looking for that experience. And we can do any technique very sincerely with enormous effort or willpower, commitment, with a lot of good qualities, but also colored with our confusions, the distortions, because we haven't really seen behind what's the purpose, how to practice. So just in a simple way, I want to talk about that tonight. And um, of course... When we say everything happens by itself, or what's the point of practice, I'm sure you would all know that the Buddha talked about what he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. And that's really the point, to deliver our minds, our hearts, from the confusion that generates what we experience as suffering, as disharmony as pain in our hearts, in our minds. And what I personally love about the elegance and the simplicity of the way the Buddha described his, his awakening, his understanding, 
the simplicity of the essence of his teaching. I realize the teachings are very complicated, so I'm probably doing a disservice, but there's a certain elegance of simplicity that has been serving me enormously in the last few years in my own practice. And that's that what I said in the beginning, the beginning and the ending and the whole of our path is contained in this sense of right view. And what I love about right view in terms of that translation is I think of that as, as a, a literal translation. Right view is not about um, buying into a different set of beliefs from the set of beliefs we have now. Although it can sound like that when you read the suttas at times. You know, you should understand, you should know that there's impermanence. But that's not a belief system. It's a, a perception, an accurate view of things as they are, which is very different from a belief. And so... The, the elegance of right view, that what frees us from the confusion, from the, the conflict, from the disharmony, what the whole uh, thrust of our practice is about is simply to recognize in any moment and in more and more moments things as they actually are right now. The thrust of our practice is not about fixing samsara. There's a quotation, which I can never remember accurately. I always have to ask Guy. (laughs) He's going, I don't know. (laughs) That one from the Tibetan about samsara is... The essence of samsara is trying to correct. That's right. The essence of samsara is trying to correct. How much of your time today, in even little things was the quality in the mind trying to correct. Trying to correct your practice, your breath, your attention, other people, God knows, the food, the sounds, our memories, our future plans, trying to correct. And when we don't get it, that that is actually just a movement of wanting. That that isn't, that's the source of, in the moment, our suffering. It's not the answer to it. It's the cause of it. And so when we think of samsara as trying to correct, we see that right view is recognizing accurately things as they are. Or there's a phrase in Pali, yata bhuta. It's one of the, there's all these different kinds of insights you can have. And one is called in Pali, yata bhuta jnana dasana, which is usually translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. But as I've often said, friends have told me, a better, more accurate translation of that, of yata bhuta, in terms of the, the grammar, is things as they have come to be in this moment. That's better, and I love it, because it has that sense of movement and no separate thingness. Things as they have come to be in this moment... What I get from that, it's like recognizing accurately, is all the conditions that have come together to create things as they have come to be in this moment. There's no separation there, is it? If you pick any experience you had today and start trying to draw in, remember all the conditions that made that experience possible, there's nowhere to stop, is there? 
you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh's thing about holding up a sheet of paper and how in the sheet of paper you see the world. Because there's the trees, and there's the sun, and there's the rain, and there's the soil, and there's the people who cut down the trees, and the people who fed, who grew the food that was shipped to the people who cut down the trees, and the people who shipped it and built the trucks, and, you know, the stars in the sky, and the Big Bang, and I mean, you just, you can't keep anything out. Things as they have come to be in this moment cannot be any different, and in the next moment won't be the same. That quality of all-inclusive everything, but no separate, lasting entity thingness. You get, you get a sense of that. So, and we all have moments where we recognize the perception of that is accurate. In that moment of accurate perception of seeing, any thought of it's all about me or clinging to the moment or hating them, it just doesn't arise. It's not in that moment, go, oh, this isn't good enough, this as they've come to be. How am I going to fix it? Because we see there's, there's no way it can be different, and there's, whatever we do is just part of the next moment, but part of the whole big picture. So when there's this right view, in any moment, and in many moments we all have it, the sources of our confusion, of our suffering, that trying to correct just doesn't arise. And we get a, 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 like a tiny little window into the potential, into the possibility for a greater uh, life or sense of the peace and ease that's possible, the peace and ease that's a natural uh, condition, really, of mind and body when we're not caught up, when the mind is not caught up in trying to correct or trying to make what we perceive as reality fit what we're holding as how it should be. Because we don't know we're doing that. That's, that's our problem. We knew we were doing that. That's one thing. But we don't know, and that's where we get, where we get caught. And that's where awareness comes in. The Buddha's teaching, as is often said, goes against the stream, against the stream of the mores and the beliefs of the culture, against the stream of our own habits of mind that we don't even recognize as habits of mind. They're so familiar. Or we recognize them, but not quite without identification. But it's not about taking up another view another explanation. I mean, views can be useful. Explanations help us. Everything I'm saying tonight, blah, 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 you know, it's words and concepts, and hopefully one line of it will be helpful. If it, you know, in a moment helps us drop a holding and just see more clearly in that moment. But then if we take that, say, yes, this is how it always is, and try and graft it onto the next moment, it's all frozen solid again. So it's like no explanation is final. And where it goes against the teachings, go against the stream, where it gets tricky, where, where our practice and where the, the teachings of uh, freedom, of non-suffering, are so radical, is that it's a stepping outside of the system of beliefs and views altogether. 
And that can be a scary place. Just not holding to any view. Not I'm right and you're wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, can we find a middle ground? That's, that's all useful in our relative world. But to have that the quality, that, that pure awareness, and I'll describe what I mean by pure in a moment, that's just present for what's arising without any distortion that gets us back confused again, that gets us in, in conflict with how things are. That's rare. It feels wonderful when it happens, but it's rare, and it's not really quite, it's hard to talk about. And mostly, for, on, on the deepest level, it's the most subtle level, but the subtle levels are the ones that kind of really get us, are the, the views or the explanations or the, the views of reality, the way we think we perceive things, which leads to how we think about things, which leads to our actions and our choices. We don't get it that it's a view. We just think that's how it is. That's, to me, that's one of the interesting things about traveling, being in different cultures. It's also one of the things of all the, the different cultures within our own country here. You know, when you don't realize different cultures look at things in different ways and have different belief systems for, for many things. And when it first, we first go into another culture and don't realize that, there's often this kind of friction, you know. It also can be really interesting. But to start to see, oh, I thought that's just the way people should behave. Say, no, that's just this particular cultural group. I've used this example before, but since I just got back from Burma, I thought of it again. So in Burma is an essentially Buddhist country, and I've been spending a lot of time talking to, to nuns and monks and people who are particularly Buddhist, which is tons and tons of people in the country. And they have a very strong faith, not only in Buddhist practice, but in the Buddhist teaching and in the whole uh, cosmological description that's in the suttas. It's all taken very literally. And uh, so one time, a couple of years, a few years ago, I was with some friends and we were visiting nuns and doing some, anyway, doing a lot of different things, but we were taking a lot of photographs. And in one, two or three of us, different cameras. And in one of the photographs, we were in a, in a room down in a, in a monastery in the Delta and distributing a lot of food at this place. There's a lot of people in it. And in, in one of the sets of pictures, there were on, on several of the people and in between several of the people, there were these kind of round, exactly round, kind of strange light-shaped images. And they're kind of all over the picture, just certain pictures. And it was, what was interesting was to see the interpretation that different ones of us came up with out of our culture, out of our conditioning. So when we first saw them, one of my friends who's a Swiss woman, but she's been a nun there for like 19 years and kind of half Burmese, she looked and goes, wow, look at that. That's Davis, which is like celestial beings, all over the room, all over the picture. Then I, my other friend looked at it. She's also a nun, but she's been a scientist. She had a PhD in biology, a real scientist. She goes, Davis, don't give me Davis. It's clearly there's just a little bit of moisture in the lens and refraction of the light and the whole scientific thing. Like, whatever, you know. Then I got home and looked in my camera, which was different. And in that same grouping of people taken at the same time, there were also 
those little light things. So it's kind of, who knows? Who knows? And that's the place of seeing. Well, who knows what's true? Not holding to a view, but we didn't even know there was a view. This time I was just back there, and the, the scientist friend, had taken, had she, in the meantime, she was in uh, Tirvanamalai a couple of years later, which is where Ramana Maharshi's ashram was. And one night, one of the full moon nights, people from India come all over to, to do production, to walk around the mountain. It's considered very sacred. So this is India. A few people came. She said literally, literally two million people. I show up on buses to walk around this mountain that night. She said it was unbelievable, you know. So she took a million pictures, and she sent me one. And there were these, like, I'm thinking of them as Davis now, too. I don't know what. All over the place. You know, it was nighttime. Where is it? All over the place in that picture. And so this year... I was just there again, and we were taking some other... And this time she's just going, oh, yeah, look at the Davis in that picture. Oh, yeah, there's Davis between you, Carol, and that other guy, you know. And the, the views change. We know their views, that's fine. That's just to give an example, right? That the, the space of the purity of awareness is like, well, who knows? It can be interesting to take up this, interesting to take up that. They're both fine. But we don't have to land somewhere. We don't have to land in a knowing, in a certainty. Because once we do, that leads to our thoughts and how we define the world and ourselves. Useful when we know that's what we're doing, but when we don't, that's exactly the process that hides yata bhuta. That, that in a moment when the chitta, the mind, the mind, the a moment of consciousness, awareness, knowing what's happening, that simple knowing. You could call it the mind. It's like when there's a sound and there's an ear that works and there's that consciousness, that simple knowing of sound. You don't have to think about that, right? It's not particularly mindful. It's just if you're conscious, there's a knowing of sound. That's a moment you could call mind. And that comes together with all different qualities, mental states, emotions, that might be present in that moment as well, that color that. So if you're feeling, for example, really like irritated right now or super sensitive, and I clap my hands and go, oh, such an unpleasant sound. You could just notice it's unpleasant or you could go off into a world of story, right? But just how you perceive it is colored by the qualities in the mind. You might have quite an equanimous mind. You might be in one of these just filled with love and everything you hear is beautiful and all the people here are glowing and the night outside is incredible. And that seems like our accurate perception. You know, the perception is colored by what's happening in our mind. We can be aware of that and that's fine. That's just part of how the mind, how being human works. That's not a problem. Where it's a problem where it, where it contributes to and keeps us caught in confusion is when we don't recognize that's happening and the qualities that are present and coloring the mind are our old friends, greed, hatred, confusion, the so-called defilements, or the kalesa. I like that word better. Defilements just as such a, I don't know, puritanical, Victorian kind of, I mean, it gets quite negative. 
And as soon as it's negative, we're in aversion. Aversion is aversion, but it isn't the right response. It's not helpful. So, how we recognize accurately and thus respond appropriately is in any moment when the awareness, the attention is really present and collected and not distorted by greed or hatred or confusion. And the Buddha, um, the, he, he talked about that, he described that as freedom. Someone was asking the Buddha, it is said, Master Gotama, Nibbana is directly visible. In what way is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see? In other words, immediate, right here and now. And he says, when Brahman, a person is impassioned with greed, depraved through hatred, bewildered through delusion, overwhelmed and infatuated, then he may plan for his own harm, for the harm of others, or the harm of both. He experiences in his mind suffering and grief. But when lust, hatred, and delusion are not present, he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief. In this way, Brahman, is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, to be personally experienced by the wise. The common definition or explanation of an arhan, a completely awakened person, is one in whom greed, hatred, and delusion are not arising in the mind. But we don't have to jump to that. I mean, don't put it out of your mind, it's not a thought, but any moment that greed, confusion, aversion, bewilderment are not present, are not coloring our awareness, and we're awake, not just zoned out, but we're really awake, that's a moment of what we could call pure awareness pure um, mindfulness, if you're paying attention. And in that moment, accurate recognition can arise. What is the power of the steadiness of mindfulness? Now, let's just pay attention in this moment and space out for 45. And Okay, I'm looking at, oh yeah, okay, right. Where's Where's the insight? Where's the wisdom? I'm paying, you know, the steadiness of mindfulness with those qualities James spoke about, which are ways of pointing to non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, is that through that steadiness, the mindfulness, the awareness, the pure awareness, begins to get its own momentum. Have you even noticed that in the couple of days you're here? Not that you're you know, mindful every moment, of course not, but does it get a little easier are there times when you're, you know, you're zoned out, you're walking, and you're often, you know, you're really feeling your feet, or you're eating and feeling the taste, and then you're gone somewhere. And then suddenly you're back, and you didn't have to beat yourself up, and you didn't have to go through a whole thing, just suddenly attention's back again, awareness is back again. Does that ever happen? Please say yes. <laughs> Notice that. And don't think, oh, wow, that's amazing. I didn't do it. I should try harder. No, you shouldn't try harder. You should trust that. Because it starts to happen more and more by itself. And the steadiness 
of this so-called pure awareness is actually the condition that allows wisdom to arise. And this is something I love. that um, Tejaniyasman talks about it a lot. I've kind of got a sense of it more than I used to. That it's not my job to figure out what wisdom should arise and try to see it and try to make it happen. That's like reading and that's another view. Even Buddha Dharma is a view if you're holding on to it as an idea. Now I need to see impermanence. Let the wisdom of impermanence arise now. Do you ever try that? Does it work? I see things are changing. The bell rang. Okay, it's changing. It's changing. But we're still looking out. We're still looking at the object. We're still looking at what's happening. And what's happening is changing in every moment. The, the radical nature of this is, we, in a way, as someone was saying, we turn around, and that's just a figure of speech. There's not like here and there, really. It just seems like that. And notice the quality of the mind that's observing over and over and over. And in the big picture, that's all that matters. So it's not about, let me get impermanence stuck into the mind. Let me see this experience of no self. It's turning around and just seeing what's the quality in the mind that's observing. Is there wanting? Is there steadiness? Is there boredom? Just seeing, without judging, without taking it personally, just looking and seeing and trusting, and it really happens. Through, as the growing, there's a growing momentum where the, uh, the, the, well, I'm going to use the word purity just because I can't really think of a better word. I hope it doesn't trigger you too much. Um, gets more and more natural. And in that, the wisdom will come by itself. We don't have to create it, and in fact, we can't. It's like a huge load off. You don't have to try so hard. You don't have to like chalk up some kind of chart of how much wisdom do I have relative to my last retreat or relative to the person who asked that question. They sound like they got a lot of wisdom, and I don't have that much, and I used to know this, and now forget it. That's all just ideas, concepts, stuff. And you think, well, my experience is so mundane. Lifting, moving, placing, where's the lights? Where's the explosions of unity? Where's the rapid arising and passing away? It's just lifting, moving, placing, tightness, burning, itching. For God's sake, could something happen? The breath, okay, there's a new sensation in the breath. Big deal, you know. I want something big because then wisdom will come. And the amazing thing is wisdom's not about the object. It doesn't matter. Wisdom, because everything... Every phenomenal experience is part of impermanence, is part of unreliability. Experience is not me, not self. has no intrinsic separate reality. Everything, including the experience of aversion in the mind, or greed in the heart, or bewilderment, or delusion, those can be recognized with awareness just like anything else. And they're just as good an object to clarify the pure awareness as an incredibly stoned, blissed-out experience. Maybe better, because you get lost in the incredibly stoned, blissed-out experience. I'm not identifying. Oh, no, I know it's going to change. I know, but not yet. Just not yet. (laughs) And I don't come back, because now I've really got it. It's just a little more subtle. 
<laughs> James doesn't agree. <laughs> That's the difference between agreed type and an aversive type. We see things clearly, and they just get a little... <laughs> I'm going to pay for that, don't worry. (laughs) But you might as well know what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, so this sense of wisdom arising, we never know how or where. But it's possible at any time, at anywhere, with any experience, because it's from the quality of the pure mind-heart in any moment. And so that is when we talk about this practice is about moment-to-moment presence and acceptance of whatever's happening. That's right, because it's not that what's happening is good or bad or whatever. The acceptance is that purity of chitta, purity of mind, purity of heart that will allow accurate recognition, right view, to arise. And I'll just say it again, I just love the elegance of that, that freedom comes from simply recognizing accurately, not from making yourself different. And when that accurate recognition, that moment of wisdom is there, these deep habits, they are deep habits of clinging, of greed, of aversion, of fear, of trying to correct, of delusion, it's all about me. Incredibly deep habits. But that's only our habits. It's not like we have to one by one get rid of them. Because in the light of recognizing accurately, in that moment they don't arise because they don't make any sense in terms of how things really are. We cling to them. We don't even know we're clinging to to aversion, to wanting, to bewilderment. Because in a... um, This is me now. But in, in our twisted way... That's our refuge. We think that's like the source of happiness. We think that trying to correct, we think we're going to make things better. And in a relative way, sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't, because so much is out of our control. But they're deeply ingrained habits that, in a way, we take refuge in without recognizing. But what I want to say before I talk about those more is it's very important even as we talk about um, getting caught in habits of wanting or habits of aversion or self-judgment or habits of it's all about me, to recognize as we talk about it, it isn't personal. You see how deep the habit is. Oh, look how much greed there is in my mind, right? It's my fault. So right there, it's met with aversion and selfing. It's all about me. And that just feels right. You think, yes, the Buddhist, the freedom he talks about is freedom from clinging. Look how much clinging I have. Therefore, I need to get rid of this clinging to become free. Very sincere, very dedicated, a lot of faith, and not recognizing, not turning around and looking at, even clinging is just another habit that doesn't have to be a problem when it's seen with the pure mind. I'll read this from Ajahn Sumedho. You know this book, The Island? You know this book? It's a great book that Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro put together from a lot of uh, 
references in the suttas to um, enlightenment, to awakening, and it's, it's just a, it's a great compilation. Anyway, this is a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho from the introduction. So he's talking about the, the island is used as um, a metaphor for awakening. And he's saying here, the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them, through awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion. The island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. That's what we're practicing, just being awake and aware. Aware of what? It doesn't matter. Being awake and aware. And he goes on, in meditation classes, people often start with a basic delusion that they never challenge. The idea that I'm someone who grasps and has a lot of desires, and I have to practice in order to get rid of these desires and to stop grasping and clinging to things. I shouldn't cling to anything. That's often the position people start from. So we practice from this basis, and sometimes the result, actually he says many times, the result is disillusionment and disappointment because our practice is based on the grasping of an idea. Eventually, we realize that no matter how much we try to get rid of desire and not grasp anything, no matter what we do, we end up feeling disappointed because the basic delusion has never been recognized. The delusion that I'm someone who grasped and I have to change it. That's it. This is why the metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you cannot conceive it. You have to trust it. I'll say that again. You cannot conceive it. You can't conceptualize about it, describe it, and hold it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake and begin to recognize that the grasping and the ideas we have taken on about ourselves, about the world around us, about our thoughts and perceptions and feelings. I think in mind doesn't like that. You can't conceive it, you just have to trust. But what strengthens our trust, our confidence, and Sumedho uses that language a lot, confidence in this pure awareness, is simply manifesting it, recognizing it over and over and over and over. So you guys have, I, I'm not a mathematician. Some people would have been able to figure out how many seconds you've got from now till the end of the month. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a lot. That many potential, that many moments. And so a ton of moments go by when you're lost in some fantasy or you're filled with greed and you don't see it. But the moment, oh, greed is like this. It doesn't matter how many other moments there were. In that moment of recognizing what's happening, that's a moment of pure awareness. It's always available. It's always possible. 
It's not, oh, I can, you know, recognize accurately when this greed is gone, so I just have to get rid of the greed, and then maybe I can see clearly, but it's so hopeless. Oh, self-judgment is like this. And in what we do as we're learning to trust, I often talk about it as like a Tai Chi move, where all our, in the, all our interest and focus is on the self-judgment, or on the idea, or maybe we don't even notice the self-judgment and our interest is on, you know, the thing that we're doing wrong, and we don't even recognize the self-judgment. But it's all kind of in the object, in the experience. So you go, ah, self-judgment's like this. You still know it's self-judgment, but in, without trying, without making it a big thing, in a subtle way, the interest, the energy is really about the awareness, the quality of the mind that's aware in that moment. Oh, yeah. Notice that. Notice, without getting into a lot of thinking, I mean, I just have to use words to talk, but when you're really caught up in something and suddenly you see it, and it just feels like such a relief. But the thing's still going on sometimes. Don't think about it, but let yourself really feel with awareness the quality of that mind-heart that's in relief. Feel what that's like. We need to learn to recognize the moments when the awareness is present, but it's pure. It's not big lights going off. It's just like, ah. Recognize what it feels like when there's not wanting, when there's not aversion, when there's not bewilderment in the mind, when it's not all about me. Bewilderment is one way of delusion. You're just like, duh, I don't know what's going on. That one's even a little easier to recognize. Another kind of confusion is that when our perception is completely wrong or partially wrong due to the confusion in our mind. That's a little harder to recognize, but we can. But the one that's the hardest to recognize, I forgot. (laughs) I had it there, but then I sidetracked. That's a sign of the first. Duh, I don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> well, I know it's something to do with it's all about me. <laughs> anyway, that kind of delusion is really harder to see because it's so subtle. The delusion that mm, it should just have a little sense of self-referencing. And in the moment when it's just the pure mind, there can be attention, awareness, there might be love, there might be concentration, there can be any wholesome qualities. But there's not the self-referencing, there's not aversion, and there's not greed. It's not always big lights going off. And mostly it's not. It's just, you know, like one of my friends said, it's like squeaky clean, like, you know, in the windows, are like squeaky clean. It's just what it is. Many, many, many moments like that that we often don't notice because our attention tends to be turned towards what's happening. It's such a habit to evaluate our practice, our life, ourselves, each other, by what's happening or how we look or whatever. This is the radical nature of the freedom the Buddha is talking about, is it's just not about what's happening. It's so hard to trust it. I sit up here and blab about it, but it's hard for me to trust it too when I really don't like what's happening, when it's really uncomfortable or scary or whatever. But then that moment, oh, scary, feels like this. It doesn't have to change, but the movement is from the identification, the meing, the, the making that scariness in a way a 
thing in itself, not just seeing yata bhuta in this moment, things as they have come to be, the habit of this mind, this particular, it all comes to be, and scariness is like this, and then the next thing arises. And it's just a constant, endless coming together and changing and going apart, coming together and changing and going apart. I'm not somehow separate outside of that, watching it. We are that. And so when the, the shift isn't to make the things that happen better, but into the, ah, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, to have confidence in that ability to be aware, as Semedo talks about it. And to see when we start wanting, oh, but I want it, I'm maybe not doing it quite good enough. Oh, wanting's like this. It's radical. There's no exceptions. No exceptions. And that's really hard. I've been last year and I was practicing for some weeks and I could often see it like that. But then there'd just be a moment where I'm just spacing out all over the place. I'm walking up and down and thinking about this and that and I'm noticing wanting and aversion. I can see the sense of self, but I'm just spacing out. I really ought to be putting in a little more effort. You know, just a little. I mean, I want to do something for God's sake. I can't just walk up and down and wait for wisdom to come, you know. And it's true, there's skillful means. It's true, right? So to trust so completely and see that I should put in a little more effort. Oh, that's the delusion of me. I put in effort and I will get a better result. It just That's not actually so subtle, but it felt subtle in the moment. But... <laughs> Trusting it is hard. Trying to be, not trying, being that radical. But there needs to be, to that level of radical, some momentum with the mindfulness. To just walk up and down and actually not know what the heck's going on. I mean, to really not know. There's not mindfulness and not. You're just lost in greed and hatred. Oh, it's okay. Wisdom will come when it comes. La, la, la. I mean, there is a reason. <laughs> we have techniques and practices in why we're talking about this. The difficult part is for us to know, okay, there's enough momentum to trust, and then to see when we're really lost, okay, let me bring in a little bit of technique. But that the technique is simply to help us re-recognize quality of pure awareness, not to get to some state that makes us feel more fulfilled, that justifies our sense of self, and now my practice is okay, and now I can relax. Have you ever noticed that? I noticed with me years ago when I was practicing in a certain very concentrated way and get to a certain point. I had the idea I can't concentrate, so that's the idea I'd go on. I'd get to a certain point where PT, where rapture, can have certain physical effects. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But it gets to this one where the floor is rolling. So I'd get there where the floor is rolling, and then my mind would relax. Okay, I'm doing it good. And then the mind would relax. And the relaxed mind was actually what let wisdom come. The reason it relaxed wasn't so skillful. But anyway, it relaxed and quit wanting and quit doubting. And then the awareness just gets stronger and stronger. So we can learn to trust without having to do it in an unskillful way. So again, knowing that the habit of these kalesas arising is, as Tejaniwas says, always says, it's just nature. It's not personal. He like says, you know, aversion is doing its job. Wanting is doing its job. 
Metta is doing its job. Mindfulness is doing its job. They're all just different, you know, factors of nature doing their job. So if we can begin to meet it that way, then we can explore how these qualities, when they're in our mind, how they color our mind, how they color our perception and our, and our decisions, how they cause suffering, as a, just a, with awareness as a scientific kind of exploration to see, is it true? I mean, I totally believe this, but is it true that we can't really trust any perception or thought or views that are, that are guided by, that are led by, greed, hatred, or delusion. Now, I, for me, I, I really, I know as much as I know that that's true. And so when I'm believing something or thinking, like even in my daily life, this is what I need to do and how do I need to relate to this person and there's some kind of problem, and I look back at the mind and go, oh, there's a lot of fear. What I know then is I just can't trust the perceptions and the thoughts and the conclusions I'm drawing. I don't have to take that personally. It isn't personal. Oh, that's how fear works in the mind. It colors perception. It colors conclusions. Can't trust it. And that's a moment of awareness. Okay, that's awareness. It's not like you have to figure it all out. But we just learn to keep moving that Tai Chi move from lost in the subject, lost in the experience, to just noticing what's happening. I'll give you an example. I wrote this down from last time I was practicing. Just to see, for example, how aversion can color perception, and we don't recognize it. It's the same with greed, and the same with it's all about me. There's there's some resistance in the mind to something or the other, unrecognized, and you'll notice that can lead to the thoughts, either I'm not doing this right, or this place stinks, or if only I had different food, or my experience isn't good, or it can go to I'm no good, I'm worthless, or you're no good, or nothing's any good, or it can just change to anger or disappointment, whatever the habits of your mind. At some point you recognize, oh, okay, that's self-judgment. But you don't quite recognize the dosa, the aversion, that, that mental factor of negativity called hatred, dosi. Don't quite recognize it. So the thoughts may go. And we may not see, I was noticing this, I was sitting in some beautiful place in Switzerland, I think. There was this little uh, subtle aversion still arising moment to moment in the mind, and it would color their perceptions. It'd look out over the scenery, which that morning had been like so peaceful and sunlit. And this time it was like, oh, it's so melancholy. You know, it looks so sad. Like, you know, the scenery went from peaceful to sad. I don't, scenery isn't sad, it isn't just what it is, you know. Or you look out at animals, and when there's, like, love in the mind, you say, oh, the deer are so filled with love, they're such beautiful beings, you know. And then there's a version in the mind, you go, oh, the poor deer, that coyote's going to eat him. Life is so suffering in the animal realm, you know. When you look at the turkeys and they're regal, or they look really stupid, or they're just kind of, you know, whatever. And that's like our perception at the time. I mean, I'm making simple ones, but it really, from that, we can go into uh, really all kinds of decisions about our life. It's scary, actually, if you want to look at it. And this is the way the world functions. Do you remember, was it last year when there was that big oil leak in the Gulf of uh, Mexico off Louisiana? And it went on for so long 
that, when that thing blew up. And I remember in the news at the time feeling, oh gosh, what a weird world, that one of the criticisms of Obama was that he wasn't angry enough. And people wanted to like be really angry, you know, come on the news and I don't know what they wanted to be really angry. And I'm like, wow, is that what we want? Someone making like decisions that affect the country and the world to be blinded by anger and hatred? Is that really our idea of what a good leader should do? That scared me that that's what, that's what people want, that we think that's strength. But because it's so common, and the Kalesas, we're so used to them. So in one way, as I said, it's our refuge. We think that's going to make us happy. Anger, wanting, fixing. It's all about me. Me, I, it just feels like that. So somehow we've got to arrange the whole world to make it okay for me, which doesn't work for more than a fraction of a second, if that. And the Kalesas, in my experience, they're louder. They're more obvious than, say, a moment of pure awareness, of pure mind. A moment of pure mind, just, you know, there may be lights, but often it's just like that squeaky clean. There's no wanting, there's no aversion, it's just the isness of things. It's not making a big noise, you know. Easy not to notice easy not to trust. The calaces come and they're screaming in your mind, wanting aversion, it's wrong. Uh-huh. Whether we believe them or whether we fight against them, which is just, you know, fighting fire with fire, it's easy to keep looking in that direction. So it really, my whole point tonight is just keep remembering to look back and notice the moments of pure awareness. Many, many moments without greed, hatred, or delusion. Then notice when there is wanting, when you are trying to push something away, when you are thinking it's all about me or taking experience personally. And notice it's not, not, not that there's something wrong with you, not that that's personal, but explore it. See if it's true that that leads to more suffering and confusion. Don't believe me. Look and see if it's true. See if it's true that when you're caught in it and you can say, oh, wanting is like this, wanting is like this, that you can get a little flavor of the freedom that comes when we, for lack of a better word, are not glued to experience, to wanting, aversion, and illusion by identification. Oh, wanting's like this. The freedom to be fully awake fully present, without fearing any experience whatsoever, is an amazing place to be because it's so normal. It's really the potential for all of us. So, let's see, there was something I wanted to read. I have a lot more to say, but... Okay, two things. This is from Mahabua, who's just died recently. He is a a really um, powerful Thai meditation master, forest monk, and the kind of like a brother lineage with Ajahn Chah. And he was, I remember years ago when I was in Thailand, a lot of the foreign monks were afraid of him because even though he was way out in the forest, they were afraid that he could read their minds even when they were in Bangkok. And you know what? He probably could. He was a pretty powerful guy. Anyway... 
If you've read some of his books, he's like, you know, he talks about sitting every night through the night without moving to the point that if there was any pain worse than death, there could not, death could not bring any more pain than this. He sounded like the toughest guy. So I'm just giving you that because then to me it's surprising what he writes. He's writing about yata, bhuta, jnana, dasana, things as they have come to be. He says, then the mind knows and sees things as they are, within and without, through and through, and then it stays put with purity. If you were to say that it stays put, it stays put with purity. Whatever it thinks, it simply thinks. The body is simply a body. Feelings, labels, thought formations, cognizance are each simply passing conditions that we use until their time is up. When they no longer have the strength to keep going, then we let them go in line with their reality. But as for the utterly true nature of our purity, there is no problem at all. Then this is the surprising. Those who have reached full release from conventional realities of every sort, you know, don't assume themselves to be more special or worse than anyone else. For this reason, they don't demean even the tiniest of creatures. They regard them all as friends in suffering, birth, aging, illness, and death, because the Dhamma is something tender and gentle. Any mind in which Dhamma is found is completely gentle and can sympathize with every grain of sand, with living beings of every sort. There is nothing rigid or unyielding about it. Only the defilements are rigid and unyielding, haughty and vain. Once there's Dhamma, there are none of these things. There's only the unvarying gentleness and tenderness of mercy and benevolence for the world at all times. And then I'll just read you one different description from Deepama, who is a very uh, realized little tiny Indian lady. She said, there's so much sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now, every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. We only have to start with this moment. Just, it's like this, always available. So let's just sit quietly with taste and zest.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.